One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome back to Snowcast. I'm John Snow, and this week's guest is Stephen Davis. Stephen is an investigative journalist and author who has worked around the world on newspaper stories and documentaries. He's also a podcaster whose most recent series investigates the sinking of the passenger ferry Estonia. It is Europe's worst shipping disaster since the Titanic and a gripping tale of tragedy, smuggling and spies. But this interview will focus on the fate of British Airways Flight 149. This is another story which reads like a film script and which Stephen has been covering for more than 30 years. On the 1st of August 1990, nearly 400 passengers and flight crew were caught up in the Iraq invasion of Kuwait. They were taken hostage, used as human shields and endured months of terror. Many of the hostages hold Saddam Hussein principally responsible for their ordeal. But they also believe that Flight 149 should never have landed in Kuwait. And they are now taking legal action against the British government and the British Airways for their alleged role in the ordeal. Let's find out more. Stephen, where am I talking to you and what is the time there? John, I'm in Dunedin, uh, near the bottom of the South Island of New Zealand. It's uh, 9 p.m., not quite my bedtime yet. And just to geolocate it for your listeners, uh, if I headed south here in Hercules, which I did once, in about seven hours you'd reach Antarctica. My goodness. Let me get down to business with you. When did you first become interested in the story of Flight 149, and where were you working at that time? I was on the news desk of the Independent on Sunday in London. I'd been one of the launch editorial teams, still one of the proudest journalistic things I've ever done. And the plane had landed and the passengers had been taken hostage by the Iraqis and the foreign office was putting out this 
rather absurd statements saying, oh, look, don't worry about these people because they're just on an extended holiday and they're sipping cocktails by the pool in luxury hotels, uh, which was actually true for about two days. And I had a contact, a very good contact, ring me on the news desk and say, look, Stephen, what they are saying about this flight is not true. There's something very odd about it and you should look into it. And that was the start, uh, John, of what turned out to be a very, very long investigation. Before we get into this story, let's hear a clip from your podcast, The Secret History of Flight 149. After their overnight invasion, Iraqi troops and tanks are tightening their grip on Kuwait. There was this screeching noise, and it was so strong, it felt like a rocket. Iraqi troops crossed the border during the night, and by breakfast time, they'd seized key installations like the airport and radio stations. That was really the moment where you realize, oh my God, this is not the holiday I had hoped for, and uh, you kind of start this first sinking in of, oh my God, I'm, I'm really in the wrong place. I, I really, something's going drastically wrong here. Somebody, for some reason, wanted that airplane to land, and we did. It's August the 1st, 1990, and a British Airways passenger plane carrying 385 people has just landed in Kuwait as Saddam Hussein's Iraqi army is invading. Troops have surrounded the airport, and the runway is being bombed. The passengers are about to find themselves at the centre of a hostage crisis, and at the heart of one of the biggest cover-ups in modern history. My name is Stephen Davis, I'm an investigative journalist, and I've been covering the story for 30 years to reveal the truth behind why these passengers were flown into a war zone and into the hands of a brutal dictator. In this series, you'll hear directly from those who were there, the men, women and children who were held hostage and used as human shields by the Iraqi regime. Over the years, I've conducted over 200 interviews with the human shields, their families, soldiers, politicians, and secret agents. I've had access to confidential information, the unpublished diaries of American and British hostages, and talked to survivors and grieving relatives. Along the way, I've sat in a living room listening to a young woman describe how she repeatedly tried to take her life because she never recovered from her ordeal, heard harrowing stories of rapes, assaults and mock executions. And I've interviewed soldiers at the heart of the most secret part of the British government, who risk their livelihoods and their freedom to reveal the truth. This is a story full of deception, deceit and denials. It's the toughest story I've ever worked on. There are people out there who don't want me to tell it, governments who want it buried and forgotten. To be honest, it nearly broke me. I've been the target of disinformation and sabotage, and I very nearly gave up. But this story is too important to give up on. It's personal and political. It reads like a movie script, and yet it really happened. This is the secret history of Flight 149. That was a clip from the Crowd Network podcast, the Secret History of Flight 149. 
and you'll find a link in the episode description. Stephen, can you set the scene for this story? Why did Iraq invade Kuwait? For months, Saddam Hussein had been threatening Kuwait over a dispute. Inevitably, John, it was about oil. Saddam claimed that the Kuwaitis were stealing revenue, taking too much of their share from an oil field which straddled the border between Iraq and Kuwait. He kept making speeches, bloodthirsty threats in the lead-up to the war. He said unless it was settled, he was going to invade. And in the, in the immediate days before Flight 149, troops gathered on the border. There were Republican Guard tanks gathered on the border. And pretty much everybody knew that he was about to invade. Uh, indeed, John, I have a CIA file in which they predicted the invasion about seven days before it happened. Wow. Flight 149 set out from Heathrow on August the 1st with a scheduled stop in Kuwait to refuel. Can you tell me what the passengers witnessed on the runway shortly after landing? When the plane landed, it was very odd for them because they couldn't see any other planes uh, around, which made them feel a bit nervous. A few people got off to stretch their legs. There were a few people stopping at Kuwait the majority of them stayed on the plane. They were destined for Madras or Kuala Lumpur. And the plane was being refueled, 55,000 gallons of aircraft fuel. Jennifer Chappell and her brother John were looking out the window and she saw a blur, something traveling very quickly, which she identified as possibly a plane. And seconds later, there was a huge explosion and then another explosion, and the entire plane shook. The airfield was being bombed by Iraqi MiG jets, and there was a very panicky evacuation as they rushed off the plane, which, after all, if a spark had hit or a stray round, they all would have gone up in flames. It was a terrible experience for them. How quickly did the passengers and British Airways crew realise they were now hostages? When they got off... A couple of them noticed very odd things. They noticed that the arrivals board was pretty empty. They noticed that some Kuwaiti soldiers who were normally there guarding the place had empty holsters. Their weapons had gone. And pretty soon afterwards, Iraqis turned up. And the Iraqis took them on buses to nearby hotels. It's pretty important to note, John, that the Iraqis were shocked to find a British Airways plane and crew and passengers had been delivered into their hands. They weren't expecting it, and initially they didn't really know what to do. So for two or three days, they kept passengers in the airport hotels while they worked that out. And that was the brief period that allowed the UK Foreign Office to produce their spin, where they were telling journalists, look, don't worry, they're having a bit of an extended holiday there were in airport hotels, you know, in the sun, sipping cocktails by the pool. But after a few days, the Iraqis realised they had this tremendous prize. They had all these Western hostages delivered into their hands. And one of the moments one of the passengers most remembers where they really realised they were in trouble was Iraqi soldiers coming into a hotel and lining people up in two groups. You go left, you go right. One group consisted of Brits, Americans and so forth. 
and the other group consisted of passengers who were Indians and Malaysians. And from that moment on, they realised they were hostages and they were in trouble. You said the British government line that the Iraqi invasion caught them by surprise was the first of many distortions of the truth. They knew a full-scale invasion had now already begun. Absolutely. It took them three decades to finally admit the truth. Um, Outstandingly, Mrs Thatcher gave a statement to the House of Commons about a month after the plane landed and the passengers were captured. And she said, the plane landed, it was refuelled, one crew got off, the next crew got on, and this all happened before the invasion started. And if you see it on the TV, she turns to her back benches to emphasise the point before the invasion started. That was completely and utterly untrue. And finally, Truss, when Foreign Secretary, had to admit that in fact the invasion had started well before the plane had landed. Incidentally, John, even that admission is a half-truth. They said that invasion had started about one hour before the plane landed. But I have a defense intelligence U.S. secret document flash message saying Iraqis crossed the Kuwait border three hours before the plane landed. Either way, it was a lie. So was that what prompted the admission from Liz Truss? No, what it was there, John, is they had all these documents they had to release under the 30-year rule. Absurdly, they decided that to um, postpone them for one year because of the pandemic, what exactly the virus had to do with the release of documents, I don't really know. But Mm. finally, of course, they had to release it. And in the documents were buried this telltale message about exactly when the invasion started. So I guess they decided to get out in front of it by having her make a statement and apologise. There is a, a further admission that you are very keen to secure, and this relates to the alleged black ops mission. Can you tell me about the group of male passengers that boarded Flight 149 at the very last minute? Yes, it's important to be clear here, John. Regardless of any investigative reporting done by me and others, how nonsensical the government's denials are. When the plane was delayed before it took off from Heathrow, a group of young men of military age and bearing got on board the front and walked to the back. Some other people on the plane who were soldiers looked at them and thought, they're soldiers. When the plane landed and the door opened, a uniformed British officer was there to meet them. I'm there for the guys at the back, we're in a hurry, get them. So these people then walked to the front of the plane, again, seen by everybody on the plane, went out, first class passengers who left next noticed that they jumped the queue, they had people waiting for them with silver cases and gear, and then they disappeared, never to be seen again, in a city that was already occupied by Iraqi troops. And I have to say, John, and here's a challenge, in 33 years, not one of these men has ever come forward publicly to say, gee, Stephen, you got this wrong. We were just engineers. We were just a group of lads on holiday. Of course, if they did, I'd ask them what kind of group of engineers or lads on holiday got a uniformed escort out of the airport. What I know for a fact, having spoken to direct sources and seen the intelligence 
is this was a deniable mission to get a group into Kuwait on the ground to keep eyes on the movements of Iraqi troops, particularly the Republican Guard, and report back. Without any information from the government, how have you found out about the alleged black ops mission? When I was um, working on my book, the new edition of which is called The Secret History of Flight 149 after the podcast, I was introduced to some special forces soldiers who then introduced me to some other people and finally got to one individual who had a conscience about this over many years. He felt that theirs was a legitimate military mission, but the government ought not to have used that plane to get them on the ground. And he decided to speak out, and I interviewed him multiple times, and then went through the elaborate process of checking the sources and checking his information. Then about two years later, I was introduced to a man who helped plan the mission. This was, incidentally, John, during a whole period in which I did a lot of reporting on special forces and spies. Almost invariably, your government would go to court to try and prevent me telling the story, such as the real story about what happened in the SAS mission Bravo 2-0 and the story of the MI6 agent Richard Tomlinson. So I ended up meeting this man who felt badly and decided to be honest about it. And that was the kind of clincher for getting the book done. And that's going to be a key piece of evidence in the new legal case brought by McHugh Dewey. Is it unusual for a passenger airplane to be used to transport undercover operatives? It's an extraordinary risk. Who would need to sign this off? It was signed off directly by Mrs Thatcher. Multiple sources have told me. She was very, very keen to curry favour with the Americans and to show that, you know, our boys could do their job. Um, No, very risky, but not, sadly, John, unusual. During my reporting of this story, I discovered that British Airways had made an extremely risky flight to Tehran at the time of the revolution where the Shah was toppled to get a special forces team out of Tehran. And another major investigation I did about the sinking of the ferry Estonia in the Baltic, a a terrible tragedy where 852 people died, involved using that passenger ferry to smuggle stolen, sensitive military equipment out of Russia. So sadly, it's not that uncommon. Did you believe that it was an intelligence mistake, that they underestimated how long the Kuwaitis could resist the Iraqi invasion? Yes, they did, John. And and one interesting thing about this is that one of the absurd denials that the British government issued, which I thought long and hard about, was actually sort of half true. Uh, many years ago, when uh, I broke this story originally, the British government issued a denial in which they said they hadn't sought to exploit the flight. Now, that's a very odd phrase and clearly a non-denial denial. I thought long and hard about the word exploit. And then I realised of it could be said to be partially true for this reason. The mission, as originally planned, involved flying this team on 149, getting them into Kuwait, and dispersing them to their observational positions before the Iraqi forces reached the airport at Kuwait City. The mission team had been briefed 
that the Kuwaitis would hold out for between three and five days. So there would have been plenty of time for the plane to land, for them to get in position, for the crew to take off, and no one was the wiser. But sadly, the Kuwaiti military collapsed like a pack of cards, and rather than three to five days, Iraqi tanks were at the airport in five hours. What about British Airways? They've always maintained that they didn't know the situation in Kuwait. But a key witness, Tony Pace, has said otherwise. Can you tell me how critical his testimony was to your investigation? Tony Pace's uh, information is very critical. He was the MI6 station chief in Kuwait, uh, something he's not allowed to say, but, but I can. And there was a crucial meeting between him and the British Airways manager on the ground at the time. And I got to know Tony because I got part of my reporting wrong on the basis of British Airways affidavit, where the manager said he had been told by Pace it was safe to fly. I reported that. Turns out that wasn't true. And actually, in apologising to Tony Pace, he, he eventually became a good source. What Pace said to him, which the Foreign Secretary absolutely confirmed was that he said, if you have a plane going through at the time 149 is due to go through tomorrow morning, you are in danger of being caught up in the invasion. And one of the depressing aspects of this story, which I found frustrating, is British Airways have been able to get away with a statement saying what the Foreign Secretary said confirms our previous position, absolves us of responsibility. Let's turn to the pilot, Captain Richard Brunet. He's one of the most intriguing characters of the story, and he delayed departure, claiming that he wanted to know more about the situation in Kuwait. Those few hours made all the difference, didn't they? Yes, the delay is one of the controversial aspects. The delay allowed the deniable special forces slash spy team to get on board. That's one thing. And sadly, the delay meant they were caught up in the full invasion, whereas they could have escaped had they flown on time. Uh, Richard Brunier, now sadly deceased, uh, died of cancer, died early, as so many people in this story have, is one of the most fascinating individuals that I've ever met. And it was one of those interviews the first time and the second time I interviewed him, where, John, you're looking at somebody, you know he's lying, he knows you know he's lying, but neither of you are going to uh, get the other one to admit the truth. Well, given that, as you say, Richard Brunier is sadly now dead, do you think we'll ever get to the bottom of what he knew? No, Richard tried to write a book and British Airways prevented him from writing a book. At one stage, I was allowed access to his diary, got to read about six pages, and then it was quickly uh, terminated. Indeed, the, the diary was slammed and I was escorted from the room. We will never quite know for sure, but I have very reliable sources that tell me that Richard Bonnier was an asset, not an agent, an asset for MI6 British intelligence. And as I said, some of the things he told me turned out not to be true. Richard Brunier escaped from the Curate Hotel just before the hostages were deployed as human shields. What effect did this have on the remaining passengers and crew? That's one of the controversial aspects of this whole story. Richard felt he had to get away 
for his own personal reasons, uh, complicated as they were. He felt that he should take as many of his crew with him. Uh, for various reasons, the escape attempt went wrong and only a few people got away. And it's fair to say most of the passengers were devastated and they felt they had been betrayed and the crew who were left behind were bereft. Their captain had gone and they were still there. Another very interesting aspect of the escape was he said he had connected with the Kuwaiti resistance. And when I asked him how, he gave the following description. He said he walked out of the hotel in his T-shirt and jandals in the sun, and he knocked on a few doors till he found the Kuwaiti resistance. And this, John, was the moment we were looking at each other, you know, I mean, the idea that you could bang on the door in a city occupied by Iraqis with Iraqi secret police and say, oh, hello, is there any resistance here, please? Will you let me in? You know, is pretty nonsensical, quite frankly. The British embassy advice was, stay in the hotel, don't try to escape. As a result, the British were the largest group in captivity. Should the government have done more to get them out of Kuwait and before the borders closed? The relatives were certainly told that everything was being done to bring them home. Yeah, I think it was a mixed bag, a lot of different advice from a lot of different embassies. I, I don't think it's fair to second-guess it too much, although it is absolutely true that for a long period afterwards, you could simply have got in your car, driven the 50 miles to the Saudi border, and disappeared. But the Brits didn't. They decided to stay put. Bear in mind, John, that those captured, those who ended up as hostages, included not only those who arrived on BA-149, but a substantial number of Britons who were working in Kuwait, including a British military liaison team who were there repairing the chieftain tanks that the Brits had given Kuwait. So yes, the Brits were a group who ended up mostly in captivity, whereas others were allowed to escape or decided to escape. Often it came down, John, to an individual decision, whether you felt like making a run. One of the shocking moments which gave everybody pause was a, an Englishman called Douglas Crossbury who decided to make a run for the border with a group of others and was gunned down and killed by Iraqis. So in the end, would you have stayed or would you have gone? Do you think it was too dangerous? I mean, that was a, a very difficult decision for everybody to make. What an incredible tangle. How did Saddam Hussein use the hostages as human shields? What strategic sites were they sent to? Ironically, after all the later fuss, this is when Saddam had weapons of mass destruction programs, actual weapons of mass destruction programs, nuclear, chemical, biological. He identified those as potential targets for Allied air attacks, plus dams and other key installations. So that's where he put the hostages. That's where the word human shields comes from. They were meant to be human shields, preventing the Allies from bombing these places. That was his goal. So he scattered people. In the end, he had several thousand hostages from different countries. He scattered them at 70 installations all over Kuwait and Iraq. Did the captives feel abandoned by Margaret Thatcher? She publicly stated that the hostages would not stand in the way of military action. 
Yes, one of the interesting aspects of the story, John, in these camps, some of them were run very ruthlessly by hardline Ba'athists or Republican Guard. Some of them were run by conscripts or just people who were in charge of the dam. So the conditions and your access to information varied. One of the things that the Iraqi soldiers had in common with the hostages is they got their news from the BBC World Service. And they were extremely hopeful on occasions that they would get news that they were going to be let go or rescued. Sometimes they got very depressing news. The French, for instance, who thought they were going to be okay, suddenly discovered that Mitterrand had joined the coalition and therefore they were prime hostages. But the thing that all the British hostages most remember is listening to Mrs Thatcher talk about, will you let the presence of these people stop you bombing these places? And she said completely breezingly, oh, no, not at all. So they felt, I remember speaking to a a man named Henry Halkyard, a New Zealander. He said, well, at that stage, we thought we're either going to be killed by the Iraqis or killed by our own side. You've conducted over 200 interviews, and it's hard to single out one story from such a comprehensive investigation. But perhaps you could share the story that most affected you. There's a lot to choose from, John. One of the aspects of this story is that people don't realise how much these individuals suffered and how much pain and anguish and PTSD they've had since. There are two that really stand out. One is a remarkable individual called Charlie Christensen, who suffered brutally at the treatment of Iraqis so badly that he gave up flying, he gave up his British citizenship, he moved to Luxembourg. He's painstakingly rebuilt his life, and actually he's written a book which is coming out this year. But I suppose topping even that is Jennifer Chappell. Jennifer Chappell was 13 when she was trapped on 149. She celebrated her birthday in captivity. Uh, Her and her brother John saw a soldier killed in front of them. When she got back to Britain and her mother sent her back to boarding school, she was bullied by other people at the school who somehow bizarrely blamed her for the fact that their dads were going off to war as if it was somehow the fault of the 149ers. And Jennifer, and she would tell you this herself, has suffered terribly. I mean, essentially, her life was ruined by this incident. She suffered terribly. She's never been able to settle. She's attempted suicide. Most recently, she's done some remarkable art and poetry, which we used in our podcast. And I can tell you that there were tears in my eyes when I listened to it. So yes, she, because she was so young, and because it's been a lifelong effect on her, I would say would be the one who stood out. But it's incredible. Why have the hostages been unable to pursue justice through the British courts when cases have been settled in France and in the United States? Absolutely, because British courts, John, prevent large-scale actions of this kind by the simple process of denying people access to legal aid. Uh, I've had lawyers tell me they prepared a case for legal aid and they were turned down. In America... Lawyers got hold of it. They got hold of the BA testimony. They discovered that the BA manager had fled, had sent his wife and kids back from Kuwait to Switzerland just three hours after this famous briefing at the embassy. 
They sued and British Airways settled pretty quickly. British Airways fought the French through the courts all the way to the French Supreme Court, but lost on every occasion. And the French Supreme Court ruled in favour of them and against BA. Sadly, the Brits and I have to say the Australians and New Zealanders really got the, um, the rough end of the stick on this one. You're listening to Snowcast with me, John Snow, and we'll be right back after this. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You campaigned to see Operation Sandcastle, a report commissioned by the government in 1991, when it was finally released 30 years later. Did it go some way towards acknowledging the suffering of the hostages? It would have done had it got any widespread coverage and not been sneaked into the National Archives just before Christmas. Um, For your listeners, Operation Sandcastle was a report into an appalling catalogue of war crimes committed against British citizens and citizens of other countries. Three and a half thousand war crimes, including torture, rapes, other sexual assaults, mock executions, starvation, psychological abuse. The government commissioned the report and then decided not to put it to Parliament as it was required to do so 30 years ago. You have to ask yourself why. Perhaps it was they didn't want people thinking too closely about how the 149ers ended up there in the first place. When it was finally released, it was a cathartic moment for the 149ers to actually see it in writing, to see some acknowledgement. Uh, But sadly, John, ignored by most of the UK media who were too busy doing other stuff. I'm feeling guilt welling up in me, I can tell you. And that's not the first time in our discussion so far. New legal action has just been announced. How optimistic are you that the hostages will get justice that they're after? They're in good hands. I was introduced to this firm, McHugh Jury. They're people after my own heart. They're taking on uh, Andrew Tate, by the way. They're suing the Wagner Group, and um, they're a good bunch, and they're definitely not in it for the money. They have a powerful case, and they have given hope to the Human Shields. It helps if the press cover this story properly at last. My personal view, though, I don't think the British government will ever allow a case like this to come to court because governments of all political stripes want the ability to run these deniable missions. So the chances of it coming to court, I would say are not great, in my personal opinion, but the chances of enough people getting angry to force a a final admission, be honest, BA, be honest, the government, apologise and pay some compensation, I think are reasonable. 
I believe there are plans for a television drama based on these events. When will this air? There's both a drama and a documentary in development, John. Perhaps next year, perhaps the year after. The purpose of these things is to bring to public attention, you know, one of the great cover-ups of something terrible that happened to a large group of people. Did you ever imagine that you would be working on this story for more than 30 years? What made you keep on going? It's been uh, half my life, actually, John. And I've done a lot of other investigative reporting, but there's something about the story, the sheer brazenness of the deception and the cover-up, the tremendous mismatch between what the public thinks happened. You know, many of these people, when they got back from their ordeal and would meet people and friends and in dinner parties, they would say, oh, yeah, 149, uh, nothing much happened. You had a bit of a holiday, didn't you? You know, the mismatch between the public understanding of what the terrible things that happened to these people and what actually happened to them and the pain. You know, when I did the podcast... And I sat in the studio and interviewed people. There would always be some moment where they would be right back there. I remember one individual, he started to shake and tears came into his eyes as he remembered a mock execution, how a guard had pointed a gun at his head and threatened to shoot him. And these kind of things, you know, if you're a proper journalist and a decent human being, will keep you going. And uh, I'm going to keep going in the hope that eventually we will get the truth about this. Well, these days, Stephen, you teach journalism and have developed a course in New Zealand on fake news, misinformation and disinformation. What values are you trying to instill in the next generation of journalists? What got me interested in disinformation, John, was the disinformation campaign run against me when I first tried to tell the 149 story. But more importantly, I think we have a lot of young people who become journalists who feel passionately committed about causes, and that's okay. I understand that. But they don't understand the links to which governments and corporations and other actors will go to try and skillfully deceive them. They don't even understand, in my view, the difference between, you know, misinformation, which is your your mad eccentric friend telling you that the vaccine magnetizes you. It's not true, but he believes it to be true. And disinformation, which is deliberately false information put out by governments and bad actors. So I think it's important that young journalists understand this. And I, I think we're in a losing battle against this stuff. And John, we should all really be like the Finns. You know, in Finland, from age 7 to 16 now, every year in the curriculum, they are teaching young people critical thinking for the specific purpose of combating misinformation and disinformation on social media. We should all be doing that. I'm absolutely with you. I'm horrified by so much of what you've told us today, which has taken so long to surface in terms of the public psyche. And it hasn't done that yet in terms of a a mass understanding of what is there in our recent history. Absolutely, yep. I mean, I was quite depressed, to be honest, very depressed, that when a report was released about 3,500 war crimes against 
British citizens and citizens of other countries, and uh, no journalists covered it. Not one in the United Kingdom. Stephen, your podcast series has done really well, I gather, and you have another one coming up. What's happening? So the Secret History series, I did 149, uh, surged over 1 million downloads. 1.1 million we're at now, I think. And the second one, which did quite well, considering it was a subject not many Brits or other people had thought about, was the secret history of the sinking of the Estonia, this tragedy where 852 people died. Sadly, not very well reported in the West because they were mostly Swedes and Estonians and not Americans and English people. But the third podcast series, which is out in late January and which I'm over in uh, the UK for the launch, is called The Secret History of the Antarctica. And it kind of lifts the lid on all the crime and the terrible things that happen in Antarctica at all these bases that are covered up, particularly the appalling uh, things that women workers go down there and also a mysterious death at the South Pole, which may well be a murder. So um, perhaps you might be interested in that next year. Now, I do hope to meet you when you come over. Stephen, it's been enlightening to talk with you. Thank you. Thanks, John. That's really appreciated. Yeah, I will speak to you again. That was the investigative journalist Stephen Davis talking to us from New Zealand. If you want to find out more about the secret history of Flight 149, this is the name of Stephen's book and podcast series, and there are links to both in the episode description. I'm John Snow, and I'd like to say thank you for listening to Snowcast. I'll be sharing another episode next week, so please subscribe on your platform of choice and spread the word. Tell your friends. Goodbye for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.